This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 258 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am very excited to bring to you Clint Emerson. Now, Clint is a retired Navy SEAL, covert operative, and now is an author of several books, including 100 Deadly Skills and his most recent book, The Right Kind of Crazy. So in this interview, we discuss a host of topics from his entry into the military and Bruce Lee all the way through to self-rescue, human trafficking, and the school violence that we see. So a really interesting interview. Before we get to that, please just take a moment to go to whichever app you listen to this on, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and leave a rating and subscribe. If we get a five-star rating, it just makes us that much more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And then take your social media, word of mouth, email, carrier pigeon, dog, whatever it is, and share these episodes. These men and women take an hour, two hours, sometimes four hours to tell their story. And all I ask of you is just to help me share it so that people around the planet can hear their knowledge. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Clint Emerson. Enjoy. Clint, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Hey, no problem. Thanks for inviting me. Right. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Right now, I am in the Dallas, Texas area. Beautiful. So I like to start at the very beginning. Um, Where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? Okay. Um, Well, I was born down in Fort Sam Houston. 
which is near San Antonio. And ironically enough, I'll be doing book signings down there this Saturday. And, uh, and then family life. Yeah. If you read the book, the right kind of crazy, you'll see that, uh, my mom, uh, was a little crazy and kind of went off the reservation. I was left to raise my little brother and, uh, cause my dad worked out of town. So, uh, yeah, I got to be a parent early on in my life. Right. Now I know you, were you spent some, some years out in the middle East as a young, young boy. So when did you move out there? Uh, I was out there. Uh, pretty much from the age of eight to, uh, I came back to the States for high school. So from basically second grade to, uh, ninth, 10th grade. Right. And then, um, so that was in the engineer within the oil industry. Is that right? My dad worked, uh, for Aramco, which is a Saudi oil company. All right. So then being raised in America and then finding yourself in Saudi Arabia, what was some of the the pros and cons of being an eight-year-old out there? Um, so the pros, there's not too many of them, to be honest with you. That culture is about as fucked up as they come. So and being a kid and seeing it firsthand and actually being a kid and going, wow, this place is a little screwed up. Uh, you know, it says a lot about the, about the culture and the kingdom. Um, you know, the positive stuff is that, you know, I was exposed to different cultures at a young age because we traveled, you know, on a regular basis. Um, and I got to see, you know, Asia, I got to see Europe, I got to see a lot of places growing up, but, um, the other positive piece is kind of a little bit of freedom of movement over there. When you're a kid living on an American compound, you can roam around at night somewhat safely. You didn't have to worry about crime or anything like that. Um, you know, their eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth system as it relates to crime works. I think the U.S. could learn something from that because, uh, you know, there's plenty of people walking around with only one hand um, because they decided to steal something from a souk. Um, they still have, you know, public beheadings and all kinds of stuff that I feel keeps society in check. Um, would we need to go to that extreme over here? No, but I think there's something to be learned from, uh, the, the other part that I feel is that we could learn from is, uh, the father, uh, the man of the house is always held responsible for the family's actions. Um, you know, so when you talk about a lot of your, urban kids that are growing up right now with no dads, uh, I think that something like that would be beneficial too around here. But the rest of that culture and the rest of everything they got going on, you can just go ahead and throw in the trash if you ask me. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I just posted something today about, um, I forget the exact quote, but um, as you know, I'll pull it up while we're talking. Um, but it was about exactly that. You know, we look at the the uh, result of a lot of the way we do, you know, life in general, um, and not so much at the cause. And the quote went, uh, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. And it's an African proverb. And I think that's just it. You know, I mean, if you find yourself getting your hand cut off, then of course, that's a great deterrent. But what did you do to get to that point too? Was there anything about the the households the family unit you think that worked in the prevention side in Saudi that we don't do so well here yeah i just like i said i think dad's being in the 
picture is key, right? I mean, when you look at a number of people that are in prison here in the United States and you backtrack, you know, and I can only go by, you know, the research and whether it's media or documentaries that I've seen um, where, hey, most of these, most of the people um, that live a life of crime or get in trouble or find themselves behind bars, you know, most of the time they don't have, you know, that father figure in their life. And, uh, and so I think that's like, I think that's probably a key to, uh, and if, and if the father isn't, then that's what I'm saying is like, Hey, start holding them responsible. You know, if you've got a minor that's roaming around causing trouble and, you know, burning villages down, well then you got to bring the dad in and be like, Hey, you know, you're, I think bad parenting should be illegal. (laughs) You know, it's, uh, hold parents accountable for their kids' actions because, let's face it, they're kids. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing we talk about, you know, with making our schools safer and making it safer on the streets for police officers. You know, I mean, the addiction rates that we have, you can follow all those back to trauma, whether it's abandonment from parents or abuse, you know. So, so many of those, we know exactly what the causes are. We're just not fixing the underlying problem. Yeah, I agree. Right. So then as a young man, obviously you became a SEAL and we're going to talk about that. What about um, athletics? Were you a sportsman then? No, I wasn't that great. I mean, I played football and, you know, in Texas and that's a big deal. But uh, but I was, you know, sitting on the bench because everybody was bigger, faster than me. Um, And I grew up swimming, but not competitively, you know, so I had like this borderline kind of sort of athletic uh, background, but nothing, nothing to write home about. That's for sure. Right. And you and I share, share a love when we were young of wanting to be ninjas. So when did you get into the martial arts? (laughs) Uh, over in Saudi. Yeah. The the only thing they really offered was Taekwondo and this was before there was MMA. So I did that over there. When I got back to the States, I got, you know, in UFC one and, you know, hoist Gracie, crushed everybody then i did a little bit of the you know grappling and stuff and mma started becoming more popular i found myself uh i enjoy i've always enjoyed like you know the filipino you know kali world um jkd you know the bruce lee stuff and uh you know once people started combining it all together then that was pretty cool too but yeah the ninja thing was i always tell people i always wanted to be a ninja until i found out about seals and the good thing is, you know, um, if you commit, uh, if you go kill someone as a ninja, it's called murder. And if you kill someone as a seal, well, then it's heroic. So it's all about picking the right side of the line, right? It's just perception. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I absolutely was immersed in Bruce Lee when I was young as well. And now as a 45-year-old man that's done martial arts my whole life, not by any means am I any good, but I've done it for most of my life. I look back now at him in the 60s and 70s and like, oh my God, you know, the, the kind of CrossFit philosophy that we have now, he was talking about then, the MMA philosophy that we have now, he was talking about. And I know he's not the only person on planet Earth that got it, but if right. people go back to the Tower of Jeet Kune Do and some of his early work, it's amazing how forward thinking he actually was. He was, man. If he had a probably, a, if he added a little bit better of a ground game, you know, I mean, he'd already taken. You know, it may be boring to your listeners, but, you know, he and you know this already is he took Wing Chung. 
he pulled all the bullshit out of it and created Jeet Kune Do. And, and, um, and then if, if, if he would have had that ground game piece mixed into it, yeah, he definitely, he was already ahead. That would have even made him, that would have made him, you know, a God in the MMA world. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my goals, I'm working on it. is trying to get Danny Nosanto on the show. We'll see because he's, uh, I did one of his seminars when I was in college. Oh, really? I did one. I did half of one. I could only attend one day here. That was only a year ago in Jacksonville. And still, I mean, you'd think the guy was in his 50s and so passionate about the martial arts even to this day. Yeah, I I did it uh, in Houston. And it's probably been that was before I went in the Navy. And him and his wife showed up and they just his wife is just as much a badass as he is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Um all right, so then before we get to actually the career path, I'm just curious. So being in Saudi for 6 years, what was it like then transitioning back to the States? Uh it's a little odd, you know, you come back to uh I came back ended up in Plano, Texas, which is kind of an affluent um suburb of North Dallas. So, you know, you got kids that grew up with silver spoons shoved up their ass and hadn't really left, uh, left the state, you know, so, and, and of course they're more concerned about with what they're wearing and what they're driving me. I'm, you know, I'm showing up with camouflage pants on and a, and a Hawaiian button up shirt with bananas all over it. You know what I mean? So I really (laughs) didn't blend in very well. And, you know, uh, everyone's looking at me kind of funny and I'm like, eh, I'm not really fitting in here very well, but, um, that's okay. I didn't really care either. So, but eventually, you know, you make a core group of friends and, you know, friends make transitions always a lot easier. Now, as a young man, I'm just curious because I, I was very lucky to travel when I was young, too. And that's the thing about growing up in England, this, this little rock in the middle of the Atlantic is we tend to travel a lot because, you know, there's there's the beautiful island. The, weather's, not, the weather and the food sucks, right? The weather does. <laughs> the food, we, the people think of British food. We've got so many uh, nations within our nation that it's amazing. But the, yeah, the, the weather sucks balls, yeah, no questions. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, that's know, why Indian food is the national food. Because it is. fish and chips only goes so far. It is. That is true. People <laughs> yeah. are like, well, what, you know, what's British food? I'm like, what, stir fry? It's curry? It's, you know, you name it. It's curry. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, but you know, it gives you a, a very different, or gave me personally a very different view of the world. So when you start hearing some of this, this ignorant bullshit that people speak, you're like, you know, like you're so fucking wrong. So what being you know, still younger, having seen many places in the world, did you, did you see the kind of ignorance based on people who have never leaving their country? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. And you can't really hold against them because let's face it, not every kid you know, not every family has the ability to go and travel the globe, um, which, you know, Americans are known for kind of being somewhat closed minded, you know, because this is a great country and you really don't need to travel far outside of it because you have everything you want here. And, and you actually have a whole lot of culture here, too. It's just a matter of going out and finding it. But um, I think that, you know, at that age and of course, the kids are going to be you know, somewhat blind to what's really going on around the world. You know, it's kind of natural, but, uh, yeah, you're right. If you're overseas, um, you know, it's very, it's the opposite. People travel all the time, you know, holiday is, is all the time. It's not, you know, just like here in the United States, there's only certain portions of the year where people actually go on holiday. Uh, whereas overseas it's, it's kind of like, 
the number one goal, right? I mean, is to travel. <clears throat> yeah, you got a sunburn somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's talk about career. Did, had you actually? Let me backtrack. I know the story. I'd love to hear it again. What was that interaction that drove you to join the SEALs? Yeah. So you know, traveling as a young kid, you know, uh, ran into a guy in an airport. Um, who had an interesting tattoo and I asked him what it was and he was like, it's a trident. And I was like, well, what's a trident? And he's like, Jesus, do I really have to explain all this to you? And, uh, I'm like, yeah, yeah. What is, so what's a trident? And he's like, it's a symbol that represents, you know, um, a, you know, a military unit and kind of gives me this long, you know, and then he starts to finally tell me like, look, you know, where are you from kid? And I'm like, well, I'm growing up in Saudi. I'm living in Saudi right now. And he's like, all right. Remember when, uh, remember when we bombed Libya? And, uh, I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, I went in with my buddies and we took out the anti-aircraft guns and the guys manning it so that the B-111s could come in and drop bombs more accurately without worrying about being shot out of the sky. And I was like, that's cool. So you mean you like, you went in at night and you like killed the guys and you blew up the guns and he's like, yep, exactly. And so that stuck with me forever. And I was like, yeah, that's the kind of work I want to do. And at the time, there was no internet. There was no social media. Hell, there weren't even, there, there wasn't even, um, you know, there wasn't even books. So the only research I could do was uh, a couple little articles here and there about UDT and SEALs in the, uh, you know, in the uh, military and, or in the library. And so I ended up, uh, you know, going that route and stuck with it. And that, uh, once I got into the military, uh, I did some research on that guy and his operations that he told me about. And it turns out it was all bullshit. So my whole dream was put in place by a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of the funny part of it. Yeah. Well, no, I heard I th you were telling someone else on another podcast and I, I heard that and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's ironic that there's so much like anti stolen valor and rightly so, you know, I mean, any profession, anyone masquerading someone, they're not, but ironically, yeah, that actually drove you to become a real seal. So kudos to that guy, even though he's full of yeah. shit. <laughs> awesome. So <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh, pretty funny. So I'd love to just hear, I know everyone has their own kind of uh unique experience through buds. And I know you said you're not, you weren't the biggest of men. So, um, what were some of the challenges for you and what got you specifically through buds? Uh, I, I tell people all the time, it boils down to passion, right? Seals come in all shapes and sizes and, uh, everybody in their mind has it in their mind that, um, you know, we're, we're all built like, you know, NFL linebackers or something, but that's just not the case. I mean, if I had to compare us to any given sport, it would be triathletes, right? You're very lean, um, you know, uh, good at the run, the swim, um, and you're mobile, you're flexible. Um, you're basically, you know, not to go back to Bruce Lee, but pound for pound strength is what's important, you know? So, um, and that's probably how I was built, you know, as a skinny little guy, um, average, I would say six foot, you know, and, you know, 160 pounds probably when I came in, which is, uh, you know, skinny for sure. And so, um, joined the Navy and, uh, and I think what 
really gets you through and is just obviously you have to have that no quit attitude. It's okay to think about it for a split second, go, wow, this sucks. I really don't want to do this. (laughs) Um, but for me, you think about that quit piece and you go, wait a minute. No, I'm not doing that. Right. I mean, it's just put you, you just question yourself and then you, and then you answer the question, uh, and you put your head down, you keep moving forward. But passion ultimately is the key to it all. If you've got the passion and you really, really want it, then you'll get it. It's, that's the bottom line. And, uh, you know, so I was always mid pack and, you know, on our timed runs, I was always middle of the pack on our, on our, uh, two mile ocean swims, you know, the O course, I was probably above average just because, you know, light, strong, and fast, you know, is key to, you know, getting through an O course, you know, effectively and smartly, right. It's better. An O course is more about technique than it is about, you know, strength or endurance. Um, and then, uh, you know, all of the other obstacles that they throw in your way, um, you just, you know, you just suck it up and do it, you know, and then don't look at the finish line cause it can become overwhelming if you go, Oh my God, I got six more months of this crap. Uh, it's better just to go, all right, you know, this will end, the day will end eventually. And, uh, so that's all you wait for. Just wait for the day to end and know that tomorrow is a new day. Brilliant. Now, as a fireman, I mean, I, my earlier training, you know, went through some, I, I don't know how comparable it is to, to buds, but they, you know, some departments will put you through the absolute grinder as well. And, you know, they're the same thing. You like, you want to quit, you're stuck in the middle of a maze, you're throwing up in your mask, all these kind of things. But um, then you get out, you know, you finish orientation, you finish your probation, whatever it is. And I think one of the challenges for us is to then maintain putting yourself through a horrible place as you move through your career. So you never forget that resilience that you built up. You worked so hard to get there and it's almost like a tragedy to then stop working out, stop challenging yourself mentally and then let that fall by the wayside. So what do you, what do you do to, to maintain that resilience that you developed? Well, the job naturally, um, has those things built in, right? Once you, once you get through buds and you're at a seal team, then it doesn't matter whether it's your training that you're doing all year round or real world operations. It, there's every aspect of it keep puts your, what I call what you're talking about is your will. Right. And I feel like you have to test your will, um, at least once a year now that I'm out. Right. So I'll go do like some crazy race, adventure racing, something that puts you in a position where quitting is an option. And then you just don't quit, right? And that's what puts your will to the test. And so I feel like you got to do that from time to time. But the job in itself, I mean, every phase of training, and then of course, when you go overseas and it's time to put that training to work, you're constantly testing yourself and you're always reflecting on whatever was worse than that in order to get through it to a certain degree. So when you first join the SEAL teams, you go, oh, okay, I made it through Hell Week. I can make it through this. Um, And then your first time to, you know, get ambushed, you know, all right, this is the the new baseline, okay, getting ambushed. (laughs) So I, I made it through that. I know I can make it through anything, right? And then there's always gonna be something worse that creeps up in your career and 
basically sets the new baseline for you to leverage in order to make it through whatever that next event is. So I feel like that's probably the the way you do it. Right. And within the within the training environment, do they still like create evolutions and experiences that keep that bar high? And the reason I ask that is there's many fire and police departments where politics, unions, whatever get in the way, and that bar then suddenly drops down almost to the point where people have opposition if they try and create reality in training. So was that something that was encouraged in your training through your career to keep that bar set as high as possible? Yeah, no doubt about it. We are we are a sadistic group of fuckers, man. So when your training cadre is setting you up setting up your training, it's like number one, let's make sure it's a place that's got great liberty, right? So you want that's that's always priority. Going out, hitting the town, whatever it is. But right there in first place with that is how hard can we make it on these guys? So you know, if you're talking about something like over the beach training, right, where you're swimming in, you're swimming in to a beach, you then hit a target and then you have to swim back out. Okay. So they would go, all right, let's do that in Hawaii because Hawaii is awesome. Right. But they would set up that OTB training on North shore where you're talking anywhere, depending on the night, the day, the time of year, you know, 10 to 20 foot waves that you're having to, you know, swimming in. So as you come in, you're just getting destroyed in the surf zone in order to get to the beach. And then you go hit your little, you know, target. And then you have to swim back out through that stuff. And that is a true test of manhood um, with all your gear on, guns, comms, and you've got to get through that surf zone alive and to the boats. And uh, there was plenty of times where guys just could not make it back out through the surf zone because it was just um, dangerous. I mean, just straight up dangerous. And uh, so, you know, that's one example. But that that is how the training guys treat every single aspect of our workups is how, how hard can we make it on them? Because when you go overseas and it's time to actually do your work, um, we have a, we kind of have this unwritten philosophy that the operations overseas should always be easier than training. Yeah. The same. And they say the same in the MMA, don't they? You know, the hardest work should be the gym, not the cage. That's right. It's uh, that's how you win every time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I agree a hundred percent and I, you know, I don't know if I put myself through enough, but it's heartbreaking when you see departments, whether it's the military, but more so in, in my circle, police and fire, where that's not the case. And then, you know, we have some large scale incident and, and people are going to fail. I mean, there's no way around it because they haven't put themselves in that, that place before. But like you said, if you are constantly putting yourself safely, but putting pushing the parameters out and, and stressing yourself mentally and physically, the chances are when we have some horrendous attack, fire, whatever it ends up being, we're not going to be uncomfortable in that environment that's created. Yeah, exactly. You're well, you're you're definitely not going to run, right? Because let's face it, humans are naturally lazy and it takes a lot. You know, you have to put yourself through the ringer uh in order to be prepared for whatever it is, you know, that you potentially could face. So, but if you're not doing that, then yeah, you're going to you're going to always 
take the lazy route. Absolutely. Now, I know that you were in uh, SEAL Team 6, which I know is dev group. I had uh, Jeff Nichols and uh, I'm forgetting there was someone else that was um, on the show that was also um, SEAL Team 6. But what I find interesting about that is you, you have your teams and I know that that particular group is kind of tasked at you know, new innovations, new fitness, nutrition, you know, whatever it is. Um, what was it like for you being in that innovation role? Did, did, did you, um, uh, did you have the, the funding and the freedom to really use all your assets to improve that environment so your men could actually thrive? Yeah, that, that's a very unique command. Um, it has, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about money and resources and it has all of it. It has more money than God and it has every resource you can think of. And so, you know, when you have a very, very few seals with that amount of support, you can literally get pretty much anything done. And every guy individually can become a subject matter expert. Um, and I'm talking tier one top in their field. Um, very easily because, you know, if let's say a guy wants to be the best lead climber in the world, he can do it at that place because they will pay for you to go climb every mountain on this planet um, with all of the pros uh, and they don't bat an eye at it, right? They want you to be the best at what you want to be the best at or what your job, your role or responsibility is. So, um the other thing there is because of the support, you know, you'll really truly allow SEALs to be um, 100% shooter first, right? So, whereas in the regular SEAL teams, you know, w as a platoon, we are building our own pallets, you know, when we have, you know, so 10,000 pounds of gear built onto these aircraft pallets. And then we're ensuring that those pallets are loaded onto a plane and all of these things are, you know, there's a lot of administrative and logistics that we do ourselves as a platoon in order to move around the globe. But once you go there, now a lot of stuff is done for you. You know, it's, you're very much the rock star kind of lifestyle. Um, you know, because you have so much support, uh, and that because you have all that support, it, it allows every guy to truly become a professional soldier at whatever it is that they want to do. So for me, I got, I was there in a very different capacity. Um, I had racked up some successes doing covert stuff. And so they recruited me. I didn't go through the same pipeline that most guys have to, which you know, is, is a bad thing in that world. Um, so if you kind of walk on varsity, uh, you know, nobody likes you <laughs> and you get, you get a big target put on your back. And, you know, and for me, I was there almost what, eight, nine years straight. And, you know, you had some guys that, you know, certainly gave me hell for it, but, uh, and that's okay. Cause I understood, you know, I was like, look, I, I didn't ask. I was kind of almost told to come here and do what I'm doing. And what I was doing for the command was much different than anyone else. So, um, you know, checking all the boxes, uh, to get there didn't matter to the, to the leaders because of the nature of the work. So long story short, you know, my job in, um, with, uh, you know, doing more of the clandestine covert stuff, um, 
I was I I was given that same freedom and flexibility to become the best at, you know, certain aspects of of that world, and uh, was able to rack up even more successes there. And it was, uh, it's a you, you just can't. There is no other place like it in the world. I mean, it's uh, it's incredible. So yeah, right. But and and is is obviously you've got a team that are incredibly you know efficient and good at what they do. But there's is there also then that. Uh, mentor role where then the skills that you guys have developed are then passed down through the other SEAL teams? Yeah, you, so, I mean, these days to get there, I mean, you've got to have at least done, I think, two combat tours. Um, you know, the, the selection process to go there is, uh, you know, they can be, they can be far more pickier now, right? Um, because they can pick, you know, the cream of the crop, seals they've always done that but now when you've got your choice between someone who's been in combat you know a lot versus a guy who hasn't you know you're always going to pick the combat experienced guy first you know because that is experience that can't be created anywhere else you know and especially if you're in a leadership role in combat you know that makes you a pretty valuable guy too so um and 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 at that level, you know, you definitely leverage your experience from your past life, uh, for sure, in order to get through um, everything that they expect of you. Right. Now, I want to transition to, you know, when you get out. But one thing I always like to ask any of the members of military that come on, um, because there's that kind of black and white, you know, pro-war, anti-war kind of polarization that we have here. But this, when I hear people that have been over there, there's usually an event, a story where they realize that whatever the political reason that they were initially sent out, they witness some horrible shit done by some horrible people. And then, you know, that then really kind of underlines that what they're doing out there is good. So did you have any moments early in your career where you um, realize that, yes, this, you know, these really are some evil bastards that we're fighting? Yeah, there's multiple times that happens, you know, and, you know, the beauty of special operations is that it's bipartisan, you know, and I mean, on the side of the presidents, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if, if there's a Democrat or a Republican sitting in the Oval Office, both always use special operations to their full extent. So, which is awesome for us, keeps us engaged no matter who's in charge. And, And that's always a good thing. Um, you get overseas and, you know, one example is, you know, Iraq, right? There was no smoking gun and there was all this controversy over bad intel and, um, you know, whether Saddam had these weapons of mass destruction or not. Um, and the reality was for, for me personally, it was every guy, every soldier, Iraqi soldier that, you know, you either take prisoner or you kill or whatever, they always had all of them had one thing in common. They had a gas mask, they had atropine and they had epinephrine. And so for anyone listening, those are all the things you need for, you know, any kind of chem bio attack. And so we'd ask them like, dude, why are you guys carrying these? Because the U S isn't going to use this stuff. And they're like, Oh no. Yeah, we know. We're, we're carrying this because of Saddam, <laughs> you know, they they were worried about getting gassed or, you know, uh, by his own weapons. And 
So, and that became the common denominator across the board. Anytime you ran into those guys, they all had the same exact answer. It wasn't because they thought we were going to use it against them. They thought Saddam was going to use it against them. And so that was very telling, right? You don't need a smoking gun when you have the entire Iraqi military carrying gas mass atropine and epi because they thought their own leader was going to use it. <laughs> so to me, that is the smoking gun. Right. And, um, but there's a flip side to all this. When you go into these countries and I've been to a bunch of them, um, and you see the kids and how the kids look at you, you know, for me, the way that they were looking at me was exactly how I looked at Saudis when I was growing up. Right. I grew up hating those motherfuckers and so what did I do? I ended up becoming a SEAL. And those little immature comments as a child saying, one day I'm going to come back and kill these fuckers. Uh, what happened? I ended up actually doing it. So now you've got all these little clints staring at you. And do you think what opportunities do they have? Right. Me, I could have been a doctor, a lawyer. I could have gone down any path I wanted because I'm growing up in America. Where are they growing up? They're growing up in a shithole. And, uh, and so, and they're looking at us. And so it's a very, there's a, there's a balance here. When you go into these countries, you know, you're creating a generation of kids that don't understand why you're there. Okay. They, they don't get it. And they've got their parents telling them that we're bad. And, uh, so it's a very fine, it's a balancing act of diplomacy that's mixed in with warfare of, Hey, how do we win the hearts and minds of these kids um, so that they so that we don't create generations of terrorists? And uh, it's uh, so you see both sides, right? I mean, so to me, when people ask me about, well, should we leave? Should we stay? Should we leave? Should we stay? And I'm like, you should just stay because ideally, if you stay, you can go ahead and change the hearts and minds over time so that the conflict portion becomes the smallest part of their memory. And the biggest part of their memory is, oh yeah, those are the Americans that built these bases and they created jobs. And yeah, my mom works there and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's, uh, does the military really want to get into that? Probably not. You know, we always, you know, if I was over there, I'd be like, what the fuck are we doing? You know, you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to waste your time because that is the, that's a very strategic long plan, right? I mean, people don't like to admit it or maybe they look at it differently, but we still occupy Europe to this day. Um, and nobody sees it that way, but we stayed I mean, we, and we haven't left and, uh, since World War II. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, I'd like to think that most Europeans kind of get it. They're like, they like us. And the four or five years of World War II is the smallest part of our 50 to 60 year occupancy of Europe. And, uh, you kind of got to do the same thing. If you're going to go in, you're going to, you know, knock buildings downs and you or knock buildings down and drop bombs and all that. You kind of need to stay for the long haul. So that conflict becomes the, the smallest piece of their memory. And the biggest piece is that, you know, we're handing out bottled water and we're, uh, you know, giving them, uh, immunizations, you know what I mean? No, I do. And I, I've never heard it ex described that way. And that's that's such a great uh, perspective. And, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation with parenting. You know, if we can't, there's no quick fix to school shootings, you know, or crimes on the street at the moment. It's, it's the long game with that as well. So absolutely, if they're living in this, you know, oppressed regime, 
then we're not going to fix it in a couple of years. No, it takes time, takes dedication, money and resources. So I think, you know, strategically any president, you know, if he decides he's going to go in and do something with conventional forces the way that we did, then you've got it. You're just, it's just to me, it's like, it's just a no brainer that you got to stay for the long haul. Absolutely. All right. Well, then I'd love to, to kind of move on to you transitioning out. Um, so were you there 20 or 21 years in the end? It's like, it's like in the middle. So, you know, 2021, 20, sure. Okay. Cause I heard, I'd heard you say <laughs> it's 20 and 20 and 20.5. 20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Well, I mean, that's a hell of a, you know, a career in special operations. So what was your transition? I know you talk about having a plan, but this is obviously an area that's, that's very poignant in not only military, but first responders as well. Um, some do it very well. Some struggle immensely. So, you know, what was your reason for, for your plan? And then, you know, what do you see with some of your fellow veterans doing the same thing? Um, yeah, so I kind of, uh, I got, I feel like I had a plan. I knew that I wanted to, um, get into crisis management. I initially thought, Oh, I'm going to go get all the qualifications so I can be a global security, uh, you know, director for, you know, like a fortune 500 company. That was kind of my interest. And so my degree, and I went to all of the as is conferences and racked up all the CCP, a PSP. I mean, they got all these letters that guys put behind their names. So I went and, you know, you did all the courses and took a bunch of tests and, but then as I started getting more into that world, I started seeing these holes and these gaps in the education because it was very like broad, right? It gives you a good foundation, but none of their education or certifications really um, give you like the real answer, right? Because every corporation is different. There's culture that gets involved. And um, anyway, long story short, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start my own thing based on these gaps. And um and so Escape the Wolf is the company that now I do every day for a living. And it's uh, providing policy, workforce education, and tools um, that all revolves around, you know, crisis and emergency preparedness. And so that's what I do day in and day out. But it didn't come easy, right? You, you, you come up about four or five years before I knew I was going to retire from the military. I started kind of piecing things together. Um and, you know, everything is like, oh, you got to build a business plan. You got to do this. You got to do that. And yeah, those are great. You got to have a plan. Um, but you can't fall in love with your own ideas because the world is moving. And so you have to evolve your ideas with the way things are going. And anytime you get your first client or two, you have to listen to them um, because you're going to be set in your ways thinking, well, I know what I'm doing and I know what I want to do. Um, but the reality is, is it's the clients that ultimately guide your path. And so when you get your first one, listen to them and always listen to them, you know, and let them guide you. So I did that. I was pretty flexible knowing that, um, if they said, if they asked for anything, my answer was yes. I was just a whore. Yes, 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 yes. I, I'm just going to say yes to everything and I'll figure it out later. Um, but the transition, um, that helped, right? Cause I was distracted and I had all these things going on, um, prior to getting out. And, uh, and, and for us in the SEAL community, we don't take leave. And if we do, it's kind of unofficial. You never put it on paper, which allows you to rack up a ton of days, 
you know, so I had, you know, six months worth of days that I could literally not come to work and I could start working on my life. And so that six months to a year, year 20 in the Navy, um, I ended up just, you know, concentrating on me. And I highly recommend that to anybody who plans on transitioning. You, there's a point you have to be selfish and because um, it's really easy for any, whether it's law enforcement, the first responder world or the military, they will suck you dry until your last day. And so you have to pretty much give them the middle finger, you know, and do your own thing. Take care of your own stuff if you really want to transition successfully. So I had that opportunity and took it. And then um, – you know, worked on me, worked on my stuff. And, uh, you know, I got to say it worked out okay. Now, once I was out, you know, you're part of a, of a world that, um, is always out doing things for the greater good. Um, you start to miss it and I call it like the hero to zero syndrome, right? So one minute you're a part of all this stuff that's doing great things. And the next minute you're not, and there's a lot that comes with that. So you, you find out, that, you know, I found out that I compartmentalized a lot of emotions. I compartmentalized the loss of my buddies. I compartmentalized, you know, uh, you name it, you compartmentalize it. And it's, uh, it's normal for humans to do that, especially when you find yourself in extreme danger and conflicts and stress. Uh, you, you just automatically put things away. Um, and you, and you'll come back to it later. Well, when you get out, <clears throat> and you're going 120 miles an hour and it comes to a complete stop, all that baggage in the back seat has no place to go, but hit you in the back of the head. And so I, uh, you know, you, to, here I am four years out now and, uh, you know, I still find myself dealing emotionally with a lot of stuff and that doesn't matter how much distraction you have going on in your life, no matter how many clients or, you know, tasks you give yourself, that stuff creeps up, um, in the weirdest moments, you know, I can be working out and all of a sudden, you know, it hits me. I could be on a plane, um, watching a movie just to get through the flight. And all of a sudden it hits me, uh, you know, so it's very random and, you know, the best advice I can give guys that transition is one, have a plan task saturate yourself as a distraction, but know that no matter how much you task saturate yourself, you're probably still going to get hit with it and know that when you get hit with it, it's okay. It's normal. And make sure you're always talking about it to friends, family, or a therapist, you know? And so, um, talking about it is what really, um, allows it, allows all those compartments you've built to open up and slowly bring all those walls down that separate everything so that you can now be somewhat free. Yeah. And I love hearing people like you talking about this because, you know, as you know, there's so much bullshit out there like, oh, it's just being a pussy if you, you know, think about that stuff. It's like, no, I've had SEALs, Rangers, firefighters, police officers, you know, talking about it who I know have done some heroic, heroic things that I know are mentally tough, physically tough. And, you know, that's the, the element that we got to smash is like, yes, you cannot do a career in, in special forces or the fire service or as a medic without having a lexicon of horrific stuff in your head. And, and if you don't have either that group, and I think that's what does well for us when we're 
you know, when you're still with your team is that you have those inbuilt therapists. You talk to each other. But when you leave, not only are you not in that tribe anymore, but you're also not technically what you identify with for a long time. I'm a fireman. You know, you're a SEAL. And now all of a sudden you're in the corporate world or, you know, whatever it is. And so I think that's a double whammy for people. And they do find themselves kind of scrambling for who they are now and then not having someone to to continually tell them about the things that they've done for the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, no, no doubt. And I was one of those guys that was like, ah, fucking PTSD <laughs> and TBI is nothing but a crutch. It's like, these guys are fucking weenies. But you know, then you, then, then you get hit with it and you go, Oh, all right. Maybe it's not a crutch. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it is real, but you know, ultimately you're leaving one identity, creating a new one. And, uh, I think it's really important guys know what that identity is going to be. And even if it's the wrong one, right. Even if when you get out, and you find yourself, this isn't what makes me happy. That's okay. At least you had something to strive for. Um, cause you don't want to get out just with nothing, you know, no plan, no nothing. Cause then all you're going to have is, you know, some of that emotional stuff and that loss, loss of, you know, that lifestyle, loss of your buddies, loss of loss is going to be the one thing that is going to be there waiting for you if you don't have a transition plan. Yeah. And there's something I see with, with our professions. And, and I'm, I know it's the same in the military because not everyone does 20.5 years like you did. Um, <laughs> but is, is that also that guilt? Like, Oh, you know, 10 years in, they're like, I, I think I'm done. And, and getting people to understand that's okay. 10 years as a firefighter or a police officer or a medic or whatever you filled is still a hell of a service. And it's not quitting. It's not giving up because. The pension says you need to be in for 20 or 25 and you didn't get to that point. But knowing that you have already served and now you're going to transition to hopefully something that that's also going to make the world better. I think that's a concept that the first responder community struggle with. But I see people make that decision and they're so happy. I was a fireman for 10 years and now I'm, you know, whatever. I'm a chef. It's what I've always wanted to do. Well, then great. Then then own it. Yeah. No, I. you're right, man. It's a... Uh... Any, any bit of service is always a good thing. You know, that's where I, I think everybody should serve in some capacity, uh, in their life. And, uh, because one, they, they won't know the, the satisfaction of it unless they do it. And number two, I think any, you know, everyone just should do it. It should be a requirement in some form or fashion. But, um, anyway, yeah, any service is good. Yeah, I agree. All right. So then I want to start just kind of picking your brains about, um, you know, a few skills. Now, your, one of your books was 100 Deadly Skills. Obviously, there's a host of uh, topics in there for how not to die, basically. But um, an, a couple of areas I want to really kind of pick your brains on. So whether it's traveling to a different country, obviously, I'm, you can tell I'm from England, we're not big on carrying guns around there. Um, or um, for fire EMS, we're also not obviously wearing any uh, weapons in those situations as well. I'm about to interview a paramedic that was uh, stabbed in San, uh, San Diego. Um, I just interviewed a, a paramedic that was shot. I mean, we have these attacks all the time. So mm -hmm. my first question to you is when you're in an environment when you cannot carry your favorite weapon, as it were, what are some of the tips that you give to to those travelers or those people in those um, professions 
for self-protection when that immediate obvious weapon is removed from him? Well, I think right off the bat, you know, especially when you're talking about emergency responders, they're in assessment mode um, from the minute they exit their vehicle. You have to add, you know, some uh, another set of assessment skills and awareness, you know, on top of that. Right. Usually if you're getting out of an ambulance, you're thinking about, all right, you know, the thing, the protocols that you might be about, you might start running based on the call um, and you're kind of running through your head. Hey, you know, if it's, if it's cardiac related, you know, you're running through everything that you're going to do for that particular scenario. And, uh, I think it's important that, you know, you have to also assess the scene and ensure that your own safety. And I know they do that a lot these days. I know they've been talking about it a lot more. Um, but you, you've got to assess and that awareness piece is ultimately key, um, but when you talk about, you know, weapon versus not, I think every environment has improvised weapons and you've got to identify them ahead of time and you've got to know what you can use as a weapon that you carry on you every day. I mean, yeah, you might not be able to carry the gun, but you've got a lot of sharp objects, you know, if you're a paramedic that you can, uh, you know, leverage or you can have and, and use for self-defense without a doubt. Right. Um, you know, knowing your exit strategies too. You know, if you're going into someplace new, you should always be looking for the outs, you know, so that you're not just relying on the, the door that you just came through. You know that there's multiple, okay, I, there's an out there and out there and out there. Um, you know, ensuring that you're never getting sucked in to, you know, multiple doors or multiple walls in, right? Um, so if you're going to, maybe you're meeting somebody for the first time and it's supposed to be business related, you know, you don't want yourself to be go going through more than a couple of doorways in order to conduct this meeting. Right. So you want to be, you know, as you want to be as shallow in any building as possible. Um, and then, um, there's aspects of when you talk about true improvised weapons, you know, I mean, geez, I tell travelers all the time, an eight ounce fishing weight along with a, a handkerchief or a bandana can kill someone. You can carry both of them separately, but as soon as you put them together, it's an improvised sap that without a doubt, an eight ounce, eight ounce doesn't sound like a lot, but next time you're, you know, at a store where they sell fishing gear, you know, look, grab an eight ounce fishing weight and tell me if that isn't something that will knock you out. <laughs> so, and they're readily available globally. I mean, so you don't have to necessarily travel with it. You can, you can buy these things once you get in country. One of the things I always did is as soon as I landed, um, one, I always know my routes before I land. A lot of us rely on our GPS is way too much. As soon as you land, you plug in the address of where you got to go and then you follow the blue line. Um, but you know, if you really care about your own personal safety and security, you know your routes, you know the primary, the secondary. Um, you, it's real easy. You're talking minutes to go on Google Earth and actually see, you know, where it is you're going. Um, and there's a lot to be collected before. You at least get the landmarks, okay? When I'm traveling from the airport, I should be able to see that mountain off to my right, right? And if it's off to your left, you're going the wrong direction. Um, so you can pick these things out well ahead of time 
and uh, it'll do you a world of difference. But for me, it's know your routes, primary, secondary, tri- tertiary, and then I always take go to the grocery store first or a market. And when I'm at the market, you know, I'm buying all the things I need while I'm there and blended into that is the weapons, right? I mean, uh, kitchen knives are sold all over the world. And what's cool is you buy an individual kitchen knife. It comes with a plastic sheath, uh, which is nice, you know, so now you've got that, um, you can buy a steel barreled pen, you know, which I say steel barreled, but there's a lot of great pens out there that are steel from tip to end, or they're aluminum from tip to end. Um, those cost a couple of bucks. You add that, um, and if you want to reduce suspicion, you know, if you're going to buy a knife, make sure you buy a block of cheese. If you're going to buy the pen, make sure you buy a notebook, right? Um, so be smart about it. And then now you've gone from the grocery store. Now head to your hotel or wherever you're lodging or your business meeting and you're going into it far more prepared. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of things you can do. My book, Escape the Wolf and 100 Deadly Skills, you know, certainly gives you Plenty to think about, plenty of skills that you can leverage if you find yourself in new environments. Yeah, brilliant. Well, one situation where I kind of had to seek for that myself, it was very bizarre. I had my little boy, he went to a doctor's appointment, I think it was annual physical. And so I brought him back kind of mid-morning to his school and he, you know, I just walked him to the reception and the moment we got there... They're all running around. The radios are going off, and they say, "Sorry, Mister Gearing, we got a code red. We got, you're going to have to stay in the building." And I'm like, "Oh shit! Well, this was unexpected." Um, so what had happened? It was you know a, the first code red that ever had like an actual suspected threat. So we were taken into an office right behind the reception, closed the door. I mean, it was great on one hand because I got to be with my son, so he wasn't scared and alone on that time. But there was one of those uh, paper guillotines in there. And I remember thinking the same thing, like, shear that off. It's basically a machete now. Um, but what on the flip side, thank God that was actually a false alarm. We ended up having a shooting in one of the high schools literally two weeks later. Um, but it made me realize how vulnerable these children and these teachers are. And they don't even have communication. At that point, the principal was the only one that was able to communicate with the outside. So this is something that we see, you know, a lot violence in general, but I mean, it does seem to happen in our schools a lot at the moment. What are some of the things that you think that that we can do to try and at least help protect these kids when they're in these situations? Uh, I think it's important. Like I, I talk to schools a lot, but mostly private schools. Um, you know, they, they, they have protocol and best practices uh, that aren't necessarily the best for survivability, but they're the easiest to do when you're hurting kids, right? So it's called, we all know it, it's called lockdown drill. And the lockdown gets everybody out of the hallways and into classrooms and they lock the doors and then they hide in the cabinets and all this and that. Um, they do it because that's the easiest thing to do. It's not the best thing to do. The best thing to do is take a, a, a chair and throw it through a window and head to the next neighborhood or head to the tree line. Um, you always want to get off the X. If there's one thing that increased the survivability of bad guys when we would go on target is the ones that ran out the back door. Um, but obviously we put snipers in place so that those guys, you know, don't make it very far. So, but when you're talking about active shooters, you know, you have to define what the X is. 
and the X is the school. And the way you always survive those moments is by getting off the X as quickly as possible. Now, you know, little, little itty bitty kids, you know, we're talking kindergarten and preschools and all this and that, you know, that's a different scenario. And you're really putting a lot on those teachers. And let's be honest, a teacher more than likely has their own family and their own kids. And so they're going to be thinking about surviving themselves, not necessarily thinking about your own, your kids. And you have to take that in consideration because let's face it, they're humans. So you can't expect a teacher to save your child's life. And so I constantly tell my, my daughter, Hey, if you find yourself in this situation, you know, yeah, go to the classroom, make sure it's not a dead end, make sure there's another out Make sure, and that out is a window. I don't care what it is, but find that your other outs. Know these things ahead of time because let's face it, you're at school every day. It's personal responsibility for middle school and high schoolers to know their outs. They should know that the bathroom is a dead end. They should know the closets are a dead end. And if you got a room that has no windows, well, that's kind of sort of dead end, but it probably has enough furniture to barricade the door, which is a good thing, if, as long as you can keep the guy out. So, you know, getting off the X is the primary. Secondary is, yeah, barricade the door and barricade it properly. People think stacking stuff up in front of the door, like towards the ceiling, is how you do it. It's not. You, it should be linear. You put a desk in front of the door. And it has to be buttoned right up against that door. And then behind the desk is another desk. And behind that desk is another desk. And you basically create this chain of desks or furniture from the door all the way across the room to the opposing wall. So the opposing wall becomes the doorstop. And then no one is getting in, right? And then you have to think about bullets, right? These guys, you know, they're, they're shoot, they could shoot through the sheetrock. They can shoot through the door. That's why doors are called fatal funnels. So stay away from doors and doorways and then uh, anticipate this person shooting through the walls. Uh, so what does that mean? Um, you have to think about it in terms of when you're at a shooting range. If you're at a shooting range, we're all online with one another and you're shooting downrange. So if, if you're standing in a room, you have to think of it as, okay, I'm downrange right now. So what's the best way to prevent yourself from being shot? You have to get online. So basically, you want to head to the corners on the same wall as the shooter, right? You're on you're online with him, but you're the furthest ends of that room. And the, that is going to increase your odds of survivability and not taking some stray round, right? And even better is if you can go get online with the shooter, get as far away down the wall as possible and then go up, right? If you, if there's like a refrigerator in the room, get on top of the refrigerator <laughs> or get as low as possible. So, I mean, there's a lot to it, you know, but it's, it's a lot of it's sometimes just the common sense that people aren't thinking about. And, uh, you know, and that's the run, the hide, the fight. And of course on the fight, you know, you've got to, uh, fight for your life. Your violence has to be greater than the person coming at you. And if you want to win, um, a lot of people talk about the run and I'm like, Hey, let's, let's slow down for a second. Don't just run aimlessly. What people do not tell, um, a lot of, a lot of people talking about active shooter don't talk about one of the most important things. And that is gunshots fired indoors. Okay. Number one, 
they are a hundred times louder than gunshots fired outdoors. Number two, no one's wearing ear pro. Heck, the first bad guy that wore ear pro was the one in El Paso at the Walmart. He put on ear pro before he went shooting. But <clears throat> number one, you can count on the the shooter himself. As soon as he pulls the trigger for the first time indoors, he's going to be deaf as fuck. <clears throat> number two, he can't be shooting in all directions at the same time. And very rarely do they understand tactics. They're not putting themselves up against a wall so that they can't be jumped from behind. So, and their adrenaline's pumping, which means they have tunnel vision. So don't think for a second, just because someone has a gun that suddenly, and you don't, that somehow you're at a disadvantage. You know, the reality is, is he's deaf, he's blind, right? He's got tunnel vision and he's probably open, you know, 330 degrees of his posture is vulnerable to attack. And it's important to keep that in mind when you have to do the fight. Okay. The second piece to gunshots being fired indoors is, it's omnidirectional. The sound propagation is the sound is bouncing off the hallways, the floors, the ceilings, the doors, the stairwells. <clears throat> There's no way you can determine where the gunfire is coming from just by listening. So you have to question your ears and trust your eyes, right? So that's why people inadvertently run towards gunfire because they think they're running away from it because the way sound propagates inside a building. Um, so stop for a second and look, listen, smell, right? Like pay attention to a, really what's going on before you decide to just start running. And uh, anyway, those are just some of the, you know, things off the top of my mind that you got to think about. Yeah. No, and they're, they're fantastic to hear. I just I just watched a, a great presentation on the Parkland shooting by the, the fire department that was uh, you know responding. And basically, every child in a classroom, the shooter couldn't physically see through that little window, survived. And everyone, there was a fire alarm going off, so some kids were confused and were in the hallways. They were all executed. But every single yeah. one that was out of that line of fire survived the the attack so i mean that that exactly you know totally and and the linear desk thing i'd never heard before but that makes complete sense get it um, square with the opposite wall and they're not going to be able to open that door yeah and even if let's say it's a big large let's say it's a big conference room and it's like well how am i going to get furniture stacked all the way across a big room it's physics okay if i take a desk that weighs let's say 20 pounds and i put it in front of that door. And then I do another 20 pound desk and let's say another hundred pound something or other. And then those things have legs, legs that sit on top of the floor. So it's the friction plus the weight. And then that weight increased exponentially as you create that line of furniture. So you can make it impossible for somebody to open a door without actually stacking the furniture all the way to the opposing wall, right? Because you're exponentially increasing the weight plus the friction of the floor, and all of a sudden the door becomes impossible to open. And uh, it's important people know that because it's it's a it's a smarter way of doing it instead of stacking stuff up that will just tumble and fall over as soon as any any kind of violence is put against that door. Yeah, yeah. Another yeah. interesting thing of what you said as well. I had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on a couple of times, and he was talking about the number of times where the shooter was just addressed like challenged they stopped the the potential threat right there and, and it makes sense because you know some of these 
the psychoses that these kids are obviously in. It's not normal to go into a school and start murdering children. You know, you're kind of shattering that that fake reality then as well. And you see, I posted a video of um, that incredible high school coach who I believe the young man was actually in the school going to take his own life, but he ended up going up to him, taking the gun from him and saving not only his own life, but possibly other kids as well. But I know yeah. easier said than done as I sit here in a nice, comfortable study in Florida saying, oh, you should try get the gun. But it does seem like the people that do go after the attacker seem to have a pretty good rate of success if, of course, they're not in a, in a um, strategically bad position in front of the line of fire. Right. Yeah. And you, you bring up a good point. Like it's, um, it's really, you know, there's one thing and there's one thing in common between panic and courage, right? They're both contagious. <laughs> so if one person freaks out, then you can pretty much guarantee everybody will freak out, which is a bad place to be. But all it takes is one person to be courageous and then, or, you know, one person to say, even if they got to fake it, but all you got is one person in the crowd to say, let's kick this dude's ass. Uh, then all of a sudden everybody else be like, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, that's what you need. And, uh, and, and, and I think a lot of times panic is, uh, unfortunately the one that becomes overwhelming and people just, you know, go crazy and run and, you know, not making good decisions. Yeah. Actually, I I tell my son this as well with, you know, I mean, I know it doesn't represent the whole country, but some of these horrendous bullying incidents where there's other kids around cheering them on. I I tell my little boy, I'm like, be the one that says, no, let's stop this. Turn to that crowd and say, we need to stop this fight. This isn't fair. And I guarantee you those same sheep that are behind the fight, you'll turn them. But a lot of people just need to be led. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it can be for bad reasons, but it can also be for good reasons, too. Yeah, without a doubt. Right. Well, one more area I want to talk about um, before we move on and uh, you know, to talk about the books um, is I've had uh, Nick McKinley on um, talking about human trafficking. Obviously, the the environment that you are in, you know, especially with the specialization in traveling and kidnapping and those areas, is human trafficking an area that you personally have been exposed to or had any um, involvement in helping? Um, you know, through escape, through my crisis management, we don't get into it. We kind of, uh, support in a, in a variety of ways. So we're, we're building programs that educate employees on how to deal with it or what to look for. Right. So, um, but I don't, I don't get involved like Nick, you know, and his, the software and everything that they've built that they, uh, supply law enforcement that really, uh, you know, on the digital side, I mean, it's, it's awesome, you know, catching these guys, but I, I don't get involved in that. Okay, brilliant. All right. Um, so what I want to talk about before we get to the actual books, 511 has become an official sponsor of the Behind the Show podcast, which is amazing. And every person that I've got to become, you know, some sort of sponsor on here is because I genuinely use their stuff. And 511 was our uniform supplier in Anaheim Fire years and years ago, like 12 years ago. What was it that attracted you to to that uh, company? Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. They, um, th- one, they're they have really become a great company uh, in the tactical world. Whereas, you know, everyone knows Five Eleven. They started as a basically a climbing company, right? Climbing gear, and you know, Five Eleven is you know basically a rating for a very difficult climb. 
Um, so if you climb a mountain that's rated at 5.11, then, you know, that's, it's pretty tough. But anyway, um, so I've kind of followed them, you know, for a very long time. Um, and, uh, I, I think they have a great group of guys over there in their marketing department. Uh, I've, I like some of their pants. Um, I like, uh, I, I do like some of their gear, their messenger bags. I mean, so, they're just a great kind of solid brand that, uh, I enjoy being associated to and kind of, you know, being in a, an ambassador for. So, um, I think too, that because they've been helping out military and law enforcement and first responders for, for as long as they have, um, you know, they're respected and they're kind of iconic in in that world. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I see, that's the thing I see, the endorsement by people I truly respect. So like you've got Tim Kennedy, you've got um, Rudy Reyes, you've got Tri Starling. So all these, these, you know, people within our professions that truly seem to be the, the men and women that walk the walk and they're putting their name to it. And it's the same with this. Like, you know, this is, this started off as a project to try and make a difference and it's not a profit driven project by any means. I just need to pay the bills, <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, but it, but that's just it is, I know that they are great. I see what they're doing, and you know, then they sent me a crap load of stuff to to try on top of that, and and it's just it's just good stuff, you know. And and so when I bring anything to the people that listen to this, whether it's the Life Aid drink products, I think they're they're clean and they're amazing, you know. And and Red Pill Medical CBD that I take all the time, Five Eleven is just incredibly well made, and I would have no problem telling people to to use their products. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's a good good company. Right. Well, segue there. La, uh, September, they were actually giving people a copy of 100 Deadly Skills when people bought through 511. I know that specific promotion has ended now. Um, tell me about what made you write Escape the Wolf and 100 Deadly Skills, and then um, I'd love to hear about the right kind of crazy. Yeah, so the first uh, Escape the Wolf was really when I was working at the NSA. I was a SEAL attached to the NSA. And, um, you know, the type of work I was doing is important to be kind of the gray guy. And so I was looking for material and resources that taught you how to be, how to blend in. And there was nothing. Um, so through my deployments, I started kind of putting my own notes together and my own philosophies on how to travel uh, safer and blend in as best you can in, uh, you know, overseas hostile environments, permissive, non-permissive type type stuff. And so, um, once I got done with my notes, it was like a three ring binder. And I was like, eh, I kind of want to make this a little more, you know, three ring binder, you know, nobody wants that. So I, I took all my stuff and I, I, I've self published it into a nice little book. And so that became Escape the Wolf. And it, it the title and everything was based on, you know, Grossman's analogy and metaphor of sheep, sheep, dogs and wolves. And this book was all about escaping wolves that are out there. And uh, anyway, it became uh, a handout that I handed out for free um, and just ended up in certain people's hands. And then, you know, it ended up in the hands of uh, the security director for the Wall Street Journal. And that became my first client. We turn the book into e-learning and uh and then ever since then i've had uh you know you know large small uh organizations come to us for help and so the book literally became a company it was kind of cool um and then and then i wanted to um 
you know, keep extending, you know, solid protocols and best practices to everyone. So I was like, well, all right, I got to escape the wolf and we're, we're able to, uh, touch employees for companies that actually hire us. You know, they're getting this information. How do I get the information to the consumer, to the average person out there that doesn't work for a company that, uh, pr- will provide, you know, how to survive different situations. So that's where hundred deadly skills came from. And, uh, so there's, there's, uh, two of those books now. Um, the first one was all about defeating bad guys and it became a New York times bestseller and it sat on the list for, I think like eight months, which, uh, was good to see who would have thought that a survival book would even make the list. <laughs> and then it, and then it sat there, it sat there for a long time, which tells me that Americans or the globe, because it's in like 12 languages now are actually taking their own personal safety and security seriously, right? No one buys a book like that unless you're really serious about it. So, um, and, and, and I, and I definitely took a unique approach, right? I mean, for years, the SAS survival guide was really the only good thing on the shelf at any bookstore. And I knew that, all right, I got to do something better than that. And, uh, so that's a hundred deadly skills. It's an illustrated how to book on everything from, detecting surveillance to improvised weapons, um, to active shooter, to cyber threats. I mean, you name it between both books, it covers just about anything you could face these days. And, and it does it in a nice, simple form with lots of pictures and or lots of illustrations, um, so that it makes it digestible, easy to learn. And I like to joke that it's the most popular book setting, sitting next to a man's toilet, you know? So. That's great. You have a poo and learn one skill at a time. Yeah, and they and and people can go back. Yeah, exactly. And they can go reference it anytime. I know people that actually bought three copies. You know, they put one in their car, one in their desk at work, and one at home. You know, and it's uh, they're built and designed that way. They're kind of like you know waterproof. They're built like waterproof, kind of bloodproof pages. They used a higher quality paper when they printed them they did a really good job on the printing side so brilliant now before we get to the latest book i just want to ask you were there any stories that you've heard since where someone told you i used page you know 476 of, of the book and it saved my life oh yeah yeah no there's been um you know and i've been i've, I've been meaning to put these testimonials out there there was a it was a freelance journalist uh she was down in columbia and she got herself out of a really uh um, a mugging situation because of the skills in the books. Um, there has been a lot of single moms that, um, certainly have reached out some emails about how they've either their kids ended up using some of that information or they did. Um, there's been a lot of guys that'll be like, Hey, you know, you know, carrying a mouthpiece, that's a great idea, you know, cause it's a deterrent. I talk about that in one of the books carrying, you know, when you talk about everyday carry, you know, one of the things it's, is a mouthpiece, right? If someone wants to, you know, fight, usually if you pull a mouthpiece out of your pocket and shove it in your mouth, they're pretty much like, yeah, never mind. I don't want to fight you. <laughs> <laughs> Same with the cauliflower so, ears. They're like, yeah, actually, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, you're probably going to tie me up into a knot. No thanks. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, there's deterrents that uh, that have certainly worked for a lot of people who've read the books. And uh, 
But a lot of a lot of people have sent messages. They're like, "Hey, I've got my house prepared now, just in case, right?" Because that's the whole point is preparedness. You know, that's what makes you. That's what allows you to survive. And uh, awareness is first, right? So you read the books, and now you kind of got an idea of all the things that are out there. And then number two is knowledge. You know, now you can use it to get yourself out of a situation. Number three is training. You got to actually implement these things in a non-crisis situation so that if it does happen, you know exactly what to do. And uh, so the books kind of cover, you know, part, you know, number one, number two, it's on them to do number three, which is, you know, practice the skills. Yeah. And knowledge is power. I mean, it's the same with us in the fire service. You know, once someone shows you a trick on how to get through a lock or, you know, whatever it is, then you're going to be like, oh, I've seen this before. I, I I can get my way out of this. I'll get in whatever it is. But if you don't have any knowledge of what it is, then, you know, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So then Escape the Wolf. Now, just before you describe it, what I loved about it was a, you know, it was stories again. And that we've got a lot of people from Special Forces community that are doing great things with leadership. And, you know, but it was nice just to read a, a book full of mission stories and then the the illustrations were fantastic as well so kind of what what made you do that specific um, angle for your specific book or your particular book oh you're talking the right kind of crazy right yes yes so that you know i think everyone knows it came well not everyone knows it came out it just came out so um the day after veterans day and it so that's been what a week now um yeah, the right kind of crazy was to, I for me it was to humanize some of the superhero myth that uh, that I feel is out there about the special operations community, but only through my personal experiences. I'm not saying that, you know, the next guy isn't a superhero, <laughs> but I'm just saying I'm not, and uh, and it's important for people. I think I think there's a lot to be gained. It, it, the book is, it's, it's sinner versus saint, right? Because if you live a life of risk, it, uh, it will bleed into your personal life. And, uh, and so I talk about that. I'm very personal in this book. I talk about all of my bad decisions because, hey, they say bad decisions make great stories. And so this book is full of bad decisions. Um, it also, so you got sinner versus saint. You have you know, seal versus husband, you have man versus boy. Um, it's also an underdog story, you know, because I'm probably, you know, if people looked at me before I went in the Navy, they'd been like, there's no way he, that dude's going to make it. Um, and so it's, there's a, there's a lot of themes to this book, but overall it's a, it's really humanizing kind of what's been characterized by Hollywood and other books and, you know, just letting any reader know that, hey, you know, it, you can do this. Anybody can do this. And you don't have to be the greatest athlete. You don't have to be the perfect person in order to make it in this world. Um, you know, I am not a guy with the highest level of integrity. I am not a guy with this, you know, calculated moral and ethical compass um, you know, and a majority of the guys I work with were like me. And I think that people think the special operations community is a bunch of knight in shining armor. And I would counter them in a heartbeat and say, no, we're more like pirates. Um, I would say that we are more criminally oriented than anything else. And that's what makes us so good at winning against 
you know, the bad guys. Um, and I feel like a bunch of us, if we hadn't joined the military, we would be criminals. We would be probably behind bars. Um, and so it just lays out in a very honest, no bullshit way, uh, of all my experiences and, you know, and, and, you know, of course, like I said, all, you know, why my marriage was busted and, um, in my, in my personal background so that, uh, I think people will relate to all of that. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the right kind of crazy. Yeah, no, and I think that's so important. Like I said earlier, when, when, you know, I valued your, um, perspective on the things that we talked about is because the, you know, the, the members of the military, the first responder community, all these, these professions that people seem to hold up and admire, there is that kind of, uh, facade of, you know, we're, we're on, a, on a different level, a different shelf, and, and we're not. We're men and women that have the same human experiences as everyone else. Now, the why that you talked about, that drive, is what got us to that particular profession. But, you know, we still struggle physically. We still struggle mentally. We still struggle emotionally. Our marriages fall apart. And they, they don't have to, but it's those human elements and elements of our job that create an environment sometimes that do, does create that kind of maelstrom in our relationships. But to brush all those human elements under the rug and just leave, as you said, the superhero image is a disservice to not only our peers, because we're making them think they're supposed to hold up to some ridiculous standard, but also giving a false impression to the public. It is, man. And I, and unfortunately, a lot of guys drink their own Kool-Aid too. <laughs> yeah. And they think they are the myth. It's like, we have a joke in the, in the Navy where the day you start believing what your eval says about you, you know, is the day that you've definitely, you know, your, your ego has, uh, taken over because a lot of times when you do these, these evaluations in order to make rank, it uses a lot of flowery term, like, you know, stellar leader, you know, he is, it's, he is, you know, he is the top 10% of, his peers and he is the greatest thing on the planet and he is this and he is that. And it's all this pre-manufactured verbiage that they shove into these evaluations um, because everyone's competing against one another. And uh, so the minute you actually start believing that crap is probably when you need to put your ego in check. Um, so never believe your evals is definitely something that we say um, because they make you sound like you're you know, like you're the greatest thing on earth <laughs> when in reality you're not, we're just, you know, if anything, if, it, if there's anything in the SEAL community that holds true is we're pretty good at always keeping, uh, keeping each other in check. I, I personally went through my 20 year career feeling like a new guy. And I talk about this and the right kind of crazy. Like if I always felt like a new guy, right. And which means there's always something to learn. It means there's always somebody with more experience than you. There's someone better, faster, stronger. Um, and as long as you always assume you're the new guy in the room, then you'll probably be a far more, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be safer with the things you do. Your performance will always be higher than, than your personal average. Um, and your ego will always be kept in check. So, you know, just always pretend you're the new guy and you'll be all right. <clears throat> yeah i think it, it boils down to humility and we have a phrase in the fire service you know the day you think you know it all is the day you should retire because i mean we're in a profession where so many things can kill us that that kind yeah. of complacency and arrogance will get you or someone else killed 
Yeah, no doubt. It's the uh, same thing uh, across the board for us. Yeah. And another th- phrase I've heard people say before is if you think you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or you're just a dick. Yeah. Or both. Put. You're a dick in the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like that dude in the uh, um, yesterday. What's his name? I don't know if you've seen the uh, testimonies right now. And I'm not getting political, but there's the testimonies for impeachment. There's this army officer who is the expert on the Ukraine who is attached to the White House. And he corrected an elected official on what he how he is supposed to be addressed. And he told, you know, I think he's a senator. uh, You will you need to address me as lieutenant colonel. And right then I was like, anyone who corrects someone on how to address them and their rank right off the bat is a douchebag in the United States military. Like that guy just was 100 percent disgraced the United States Army on public television because it's just a dickhead move. You know, it's an ego move to tell a congressman, hey, you will address me as lieutenant colonel. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, that guy needs to be hazed over and over again. Yeah, I haven't even been following it. I'm fully aware of it, but it's politicians talking to politicians so they can keep that bullshit. But um, yeah. that that particular thing definitely made it on my uh, social media feed. <laughs> so I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, total turd. Here's another dick. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Uh, so then let's transition to some closing questions so we can let you go. We've talked about your own books. Um, and, and just as a side note, again, like I said, the the illustrations, the the comic book um, style drawings that there, I, I thought that was a great addition to the book because, you know, we are ultimately kids that just grew up and, and it was kind of cool to see kind of pictures pertaining to the stories as they went on. So what what was it that made you decide to do that particular style for your book? Well, I mean, I like being, I like being creative and different. And uh, so, you know, 100 Daily Skills is different than all other books. Um, the, the right kind of crazy certainly is different than any other memoir out there, especially military ones, military or any memoir. They like to stick dead center a bunch of pictures of themselves, right? This is me in Iraq. This is me when I was doing, this is me, 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 right? It's a memoir. It's already about you. It's not necessary to shove a bunch of freaking pictures of yourself in the center. So I was like, you know what? I want this to be more entertaining, have more value. And I think people relate more when you have these great illustrations of what you just read, you know, and they're done in that kind of comic format. Um, so that, you know, what's cool about the comics is you can exaggerate a little bit and and it makes it fun and it makes it kind of more realistic too, you know? Um, and so like you read the part about me in the USS Cole and then you've got this very like telling image, right? It's, it's kind of like, Whoa, it, it, you know, there was a guy yesterday that, you know, put a comment on my social media, like, you know, I had to pull over because I was, you know, my eyes teared up so much listening to that part. Um, of the audio book. And then you've got, you know, some funny ones like I, you know, me getting hazed. I went ahead and had that drawn, you know, being stripped down, butt naked, uh, you know, and then duct taped into the 69 position with another (laughs) new guy. 
you know, it's a very, it's very interesting to have somebody's, you know, balls and everything in your face, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and you know, there's no getting out of it. Right. I mean, so that illustration, it's very telling when you look at it, you're like, Oh my God, it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to see it. Right. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) my, my illustrator, Tom Mandrake, he did a badass job. I mean, he, he drew the entire, you know, Superman versus Batman series for DC. Um, and he's been around for a while and he's known in that world. He's definitely a master of his craft. And, you know, between a great narrative, um, between awesome illustrations and then, of course, you know, my very honest thought bubbles in the form of footnotes, it's created a memoir that I think uh, will get to the top of the list on its own merit. At least yeah. I hope so. No, I think it will. And like I said, it when I started reading it, it was it was a fun read. You know, I mean, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now as we're talking, and yeah, you know, there's there's some lighter hearted ones, but there's a lot of very deep, meaningful books. And you know, you've got your story in there, but the way it's presented, you know, with the hardcover and the illustrations, it just makes it a pleasure to read rather than you know just a whole bunch of uh, you know, writing. And oh, and like you said, or that middle eight pages where it's pictures of someone you know, doing all their yeah. cool shit. So yeah, I highly recommend that everyone listening out there. All right. So then, um, is we talked about your books. Is there a book that you love to recommend the people that someone else has written? It could be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Yeah. My, my all time favorite to this day is still most people. If you're a Stephen King fan, most of them hadn't even heard of it. It's called Stephen King on writing. <clears throat> and it's, kind of his autobiography it is probably the funniest damn books i've ever read but somehow he did such a great job putting the thing together it kind of gives you an education on how to write a book at the same time but uh you know he talks about snorting lines of coke off of that big oak desk he had in his office and writing cujo in 72 hours i mean (laughs) i mean or or like he wrote the running man in like a week and he was high as a kite and he doesn't even remember it. You know, I mean, it's such an awesome book, but at the same time, he'll tell you, yeah, I'll go into my office with my cup of coffee and a line of Coke and, you know, I'll type out a thousand words a day, you know, and then I'll print it up and I'll shove it in a desk drawer and not look at it for, you know, a couple of weeks. And then I'll come back and, and do my proofreading and my edits and, you know, that's how I write a book when I'm not high as a kite. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, if you haven't read Stephen King on writing, whether you're interested in writing a book or not, dude, that is probably one of the best, the funniest damn books that you don't realize you would never think Stephen King would be funny, right? It is funny. That is a funny ass book. And it's, uh, and it's very educational on all of these things. People, I mean, movies, that, you know, people just know him because of movies and, you know, a lot of people know him just because of the movies and not because of the books. And you've got a, a very large portion of people that know him because of the books and not the movies. But bottom line is it's not until you read the book, you go, holy crap, I didn't know he wrote that. I didn't know he wrote that. Oh, I didn't know that movie was based on that book. I mean, it's, the guy has done so much in his lifetime, but it's a great book. Yeah, it's still my favorite. Right. Well, I need to read that. I've heard one other person mention it before. I think it was on another podcast, though. I think it was Tim Ferriss's podcast. But um, I am about 60% through writing a book myself. And 
absolutely hit a wall. And I talked about this, that people listening now are like, oh, he's going to talk about this book. He's never going to write again. But um, I don't know if it's the cocaine or the contents of the book, but hopefully he can help me. <laughs> I, need, I need something to get me to finish the thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good one. <clears throat> All right. So then the same question is a good segue, actually. Uh, a movie that you love. A movie that I love. So I've got different, you know, I mean, I am uh, American Psycho, of course. I uh, I tend to like twisted, dark shit, but American Psycho was a great book um, and was unlike a lot of movies. A lot of movies don't represent the books that well. I felt like even though it's not an exact carbon copy of the book, most movies are not. It is a great movie. You know, I think Christian Bale did a great job being a hundred percent, you know, psychopath. And obviously there's a lot of great lines in the movie, but yeah, American psycho is up there. If there's a movie I'm going to watch when, you know, the kids aren't around, um, you know, but when it comes to, you know, one that always makes me laugh out loud is uh, step brothers. Um, and, uh, you know, me and my daughter, huge Marvel fans. So of course all the Marvel movies, um, you know, at the top of the list too. Yeah. Excellent. So then, uh, what about documentary? Is there a documentary you like? Let's see. Some current, um, trying to think, you know, I tend to, uh, I, you know, I don't know if I can remember their names, but the ones that gravitate more towards world war two are certainly always favorites. You know, I, I find that generation and those untold stories uh, fascinating, like because they had like zero technology, you know, a ton of grit and a 17 pound plus rifle. (laughs) You know, it's like, how did they pull that shit off? It's uh, it's always any documentary that focuses on those guys. I am 100 percent game for and I find myself always gravitating gravitating towards you know that 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 genre of documentary yeah i really breaks my heart that pretty much all the guys from band of brothers have all passed away now because if i'd done this 10 years earlier someone like dick winters would have been amazing to talk to oh yeah holy shit yeah those are those are true badasses man Uh, us with our night vision and body armor and all that yeah that's cool and all but those dudes win win the badass award every time yeah and i've talked about that a lot and on this you know when we talk about touch on the mental health stuff i'm like look at those men recounting what they went through they're in their 80s i think when they did that interview 70s and 80s and they're still tearing up and you're telling me that you're a pussy if you talk about that stuff there are no braver men on this planet than some of those men yeah, in the right kind of crazy, I talk about my grandfather. He was one of those men, and I talk about his issues, you know, all the way up till the day he died. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's just like, you know, there is no other generation, like they say. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. All right, yeah. next question. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Uh. Yeah, I mean, my good buddy, Mike Ritland, if you haven't had him. I've had Mike, um, yeah. Oh, you have? Okay, yeah, well it was then. a great episode. Yeah, he's he's a wealth of knowledge for sure. Uh, um, probably, uh, you know, God, there's a bunch of my buddies. You probably know them all already, but uh, um, 
let's see. I mean, have you had like the, I guess if you're talking first responder, um, Kevin Lance, he's a good one because both he and I both had, he, he wrote a book called the last punisher. He was at team three, uh, same era as me. Um, you know, he was, uh, in the Chris Kyle movie. Um, he was Chris's, uh, we were all good friends with Chris, but he was probably the closest to Chris. Um, and what's cool about Kevin is we both kind of went down the same path as 18 Delta, you know, combat medics. Um, but, but he since has gotten out and he went full bore. He's a PA has his own clinic in Florida. Um, so he's got a little bit of that, you know, anybody who knows us seals we go through, we go through we go through paramedic school. We go through 18 Delta. We go through sports medicine schools, dive medicine schools. I mean, we get educated through the ass uh, on you know trauma medicine specifically, but all kinds of other stuff so that we can treat our guys overseas and they don't have to rely on indigenous hospitals and stuff. But um, but yeah, he's got that same background and has continued in healthcare. Um, and has probably a great stories, a great message, and probably be a good guy to have on here. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if he's in Florida, I might be able to get down and do a face-to-face one, which is my favorite, you know, method of interviewing. Yeah, just look up the last, you know, last Punisher. That's I think his uh, his IG uh, on Instagram and all that. That's his main account. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. So the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find the books and how to reach out to you. What do you do to decompress these days? Um, I go to the mountains. So I've got a, I bought a little place that kind of is my, is definitely my escape. Um, obviously working out is your, uh, is more of a, you know, more of a, an escape uh, mentally. But when I really need to just kind of, you know, be, uh, be alone and be away from everything. Yeah. I just go to the mountains. It works for me. I try to go out there as much as possible <laughs> because like most seals, we hate everyone. So, you know, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't need, I don't need to be around people. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. funny. It's amazing. Firstly, how, how many people nature is there, you know, reset. But yeah, I think if you're a profession, especially like I see a lot of my fellow firefighters, the same, you know, 20, 30 years of being in a fire station every third day, running on all kinds of horrible shit. A lot of them are like, I just want to go get a ranch somewhere and not see anyone again. So I, sometimes yeah, that may it, not be man. the healthiest thing because you might, you know, get that whole loneliness thing as well. But yeah, I think definitely at least for a reset, I, I find the the countryside very healing. Yeah, I mean, I go out there and I'm secretly hoping that there's a red dawn situation you know, where the, <laughs> the sky, the sky fills up with, you know, 100,000 Chinese parachutes. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, on that note, let's talk about where people can reach out to you and then where they can find the books. Yeah. So uh, all the books are on Amazon. Um, of course, uh, the right kind of crazy is right now in, everywhere. Like you go to a Walmart, you're going to see my ugly face. If you go to Target, you're going to see my ugly face. I mean, um, if you go to Costco, any, it's pretty much anywhere books are sold right now. The right kind of crazy is staring at you. Um, and then of course there's Amazon is the easy button, uh, for all the books, um, and then if you want to learn more about everything I've got going on in other publications, 
Uh, it's clintemerson.com. Brilliant. And then Instagram is at 100 Deadly Skills. Right. Yeah. You type in my handle for all book related stuff is just the yeah, 100 Deadly Skills. And that's my main accounts. And then, of course, uh, Escape the Wolf is also a handle for all the corporate stuff. Brilliant. All right. Well, Clint, I just want to say thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. No, thank you. I hope uh, I hope it does well and serves you well and serves your your listeners well. So thank you very much. <laughs>